Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our Valentine's Day tribute to all things lovely and wonderful. Uh, it's our second show for February. Let me bring in the man who will be my Valentine, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? You know, it involves chocolate, so how bad can it be? Exactly. All right, so Jim, last week, mm-hmm. you sent me some interesting ma- mail. And let me just say, Jim, that you and I share often interesting mail that we can't talk about on the show, but that will will eventually come to fruition, right? So we have sources, right? People who send us stuff all the time, and they say things like, please don't talk about this for 90 days, because if you talk about it, there's only three people in the world that know about it, and they'll start doing interrogations, right? I sent you one from one of my contacts in Washington, D.C. about something interesting, and you, you said something along, which happened to be architecture drawings of the Caribbean beach renovation and uh, also for Coronado Springs. Now, we had talked about Caribbean Beach before, but we'll go over it. But this Coronado Springs thing is new. Do you want to go through it? Let's face it. The thing that's being built at the Caribbean Beach isn't necessarily a high-rise, but it's going to be tall enough that it's going to allow people to peek down into Epcot and that sort of thing. Did I tell you my proposed new name for this thing? Which the, is? The, the Caribbean Beach. Top of the world, Mon. <laughs> Oh, thought, oh, about, wow. thought about that over the weekend. I'm like, gotta save this one for Jim. No, <laughs> on behalf of Jimmy Cagney's family, I applaud that. No, that's killer. That's killer. But what's being proposed for the Coronado is yet another tower at Coronado Springs. Now we haven't talked about this. Yeah, this is relatively new. This doesn't appear to be DVC-driven, Len. It's convention traffic. Well, that's what it is, and evidently. The pushback that Disney has got from talking with people in regard to their convention facilities is they just don't have enough high-end rooms to be able to sell people on the idea of holding conventions on Disney property. Mm. So the whole point behind this expansion to the Coronado is supposedly if your your CEO or the board or that sort of thing wants to be on site at Disney, but at Mm -hmm. the same time that you have affordable rooms all the way around this complex so you can bring folks from all over the country for a convention, this would then allow them to do that. And that's the problem, right? I mean, it's a moderate. And they did add a couple of one-bedroom suites, and they do have a small concierge Mm -hmm. service. But this isn't comparable to what you're seeing over the Contemporary, the Grand Floridian. No, not at all. The Ritz-Carlton, the Mm -hmm. Rosen. The thing we've been tracking for months now with the podcast, it's all about just winnowing in on this one suspicion specific demographic and this need or want and filling that. Would this convince that many more companies to hold the conventions on Disney property, to have suites that the bosses would approve of and then say, okay, let's do our convention at the Coronado. And that seems to be Disney's decision. They said this is like 13 stories tall. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's DVC involved here? Or do you think this is strictly convention stuff? Well, you know, that's the weird part is at least what's been indicated so far is this is not new guest rooms. This is not new DVC inventory. Okay. This is strictly you, you think it is convention. Okay. convention. When you think that just up the street from here, you've got Flamingo Crossing. Even if you're doing a convention because of timing, the bosses can be in the big building, but you don't have room at the actual Coronado. You've got those two hotels right up the street there. I mean, literally just up the street. I've stated them. There are a lot of sports teams there, and I Mm -hmm. think they were designed purposely for sports teams going to play at wide world of sports. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I don't think I would put a CEO or a board of director there. It's not. It's not. It's not that kind of. No, I hate to say this, but that's where the peons stay. You <laughs> you still put the board. You still put your CEO in this thirteen story tower. That would allow you, in theory, to have two and three events happening convention wise using the facility. Oh, I get it. I get it. So it looks like for this Caribbean beach thing, mm-hmm. they they're saying it goes between the existing convention center and Cabana Building 9A, because on both of those it says, in parentheses, existing convention center to remain, Cabana Building 9A to remain. But this other one looks like it's, so it's got two roughly oval-shaped parking spots and then sort of a, like a bracket-shaped convention center that faces out into the water. But it looks like there, Jim, too, that that's going to be a separate entrance, because it looks like there's some road construction that'll have to happen there on Buena Vista Drive. Between Disney Springs and the studio. Studios, yeah, I was going to say. All of this expansion, and it just makes sense to continue to march all the way to the All-Star. It's not like Flamingo Crossing is going to stay the way it is right now. No, no, no. They've uh, they've already talked about adding, what, two or three more hotels? And Um, the restaurants. I mean, remember the the plan that was initially announced there was was hugely ambitious. I mean, lots of fast food, lots of sit-down chain restaurants. That's still all coming. So let's talk a little bit about the the Caribbean beach stuff that was sent in. First of all, let's start at the bottom of the email. There is a black and white drawing of sort of the entryway that covers the drive up to the new Caribbean beach check-in area. And I think the architecture term for this is the Porticochere. Porta Portish Goya or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm I'm not good with foreign languages, but it looks impressive. Again, black and white, but it's got the same Caribbean style, the same sort of arched roof that you see in the uh, lodgings themselves, the buildings themselves. It looks like it's on a, a good scale. You know, it's not massive like Wilderness Lodge or anything like that. It looks like it's definitely smaller than that. Then there are four other drawings. It's like a graphic on top of a satellite image trying to show where the new buildings would fit within the existing things. And just like we mentioned with the construction, it looks like there's tons of other roadwork that needs to be done here. New intersections, widening of intersections, turning lanes, and all that stuff. It looks like it, it's going to also have to happen here with this DVC. I see fountain development. I hear a boardwalk area to walk around. Do we have a number of stories yet for the Caribbean Beach expansion? I heard it was about a dozen, okay. yeah, give or take. But I don't know if you count. Typically, I don't know if you count the first floor. All right, in those right. developments. So you know, ish. It's the Disney math book. It's like when you add so many people to a particular resort or that sort of thing, you've got to think food. You've got to think recreation. I mean, you know, just the all notion. Stuff. Where, are they, where are you going to evacuate them to if there's a fire, right? Where there are they going to stand during the fire? All that kind of stuff. Where mm-hmm. are the handicapped parking spots? So it looks like there are at least a dozen, no, at least 16 new features here. Yep. From the oval driveway up to, it looks like there's a new pool, a new outbuilding. I'm assuming that that's some sort of restaurant. Looks like new walkways, new service areas, new lobbies. I mean, just a ton of stuff here. No. It looks good. And then, oh, there's a whole other set of buildings. So it looks like it's going where the, where's this marina area at on Caribbean Beach? Because you see the boats in the, uh, I'm looking Mm -hmm. at the uh, the second image. You're looking at where the boats are, right? With the marina, you've got one, two, three, four, five boats. There are some other things. You can see the back of the new building. And then a whole other, it looks like, support building. Oh, that, uh, uh, number two, it must be a restaurant because mm-hmm. there's outdoor seating in number 18 right there. It looks like 17 is either a covered walkway or the boardwalk area. Six is the new pool. Yeah, but still massive. I mean, this is a uh, this is like a, its own mini resort. Yeah. You would think mm-hmm. 
if they're adding a dozen-story building, a mm. restaurant, a boardwalk, new pools, in many places that qualifies as a new hotel, right? And Disney's just saying it's an expansion of the Caribbean Beach. That's interesting. I can't help but think, Len, that we are in a wilderness lodge villas situation. Did I tell you I went there? Did a you? Oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Laurel and I were walking around it, and mm-hmm. wilderness lodge has always been one of the most popular resorts in Walt Disney World, generally at the top of every satisfaction list we do. But they've been, they've been working on it for a while. Remember, they did some pool upgrades, then they did some child play area upgrades, then they did more pool upgrades that required them to destroy the original set of <laughs> playground upgrades, and they came up with new ones. When this new Geyser Forks Rolling Rapid Salmon thing, whatever the hell the name of it is, mm-hmm. whenever that opens, Copper Kettle Creek Still Bar and Grill, whenever that opens... It's going to be beautiful. It looks great. I mean, the maintenance that they've done on everything looks fantastic. The new restaurant looks fantastic. We talked to somebody at one of the DVC desks. Mm-hmm. And, of course, since the DVC hasn't been announced mm-hmm. and there's no paperwork on it, everyone always asks, what DVC, right? Yep. So they couldn't provide any official information. That said, I heard that they, the DVC at the Wilderness Lodge is going to include... <laughs> Studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, and grand villas, plus the bungalows. And I don't think the bungalows are the grand villas. Hmm. Okay. Because I don't think they're big enough to have three bedrooms. But it looked it looked gorgeous. The entire resort looked immaculate. The, all of the new stuff looked great. It fit in in terms of scale. The stuff that they did with the pool is beautiful. The, the playground area is fantastic. It all just looks so good. Everything was working. I was really impressed with it. I mean, if they do something similar here with Caribbean Beach, mm-hmm. I, 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 I would be thrilled. I'm looking at some folks who got into the Geyser Point Bar and Grill, which I guess just opened today. Yeah, it might, might have stopped today. Yeah, it was really close last week. Like mm-hmm. They were just doing lawn maintenance when I was there. Okay, but evidently that's already getting high marks. There's part of me that's sad to lose two floors to DVC because I've loved this hotel since they opened it in 94. You no, know, I'm, I'm kind of okay with it because I'm getting to the point now where I'd like a, a little bit larger room. Mm-hmm. The Wilderness Lodge is generally the, one of the, some of the smallest rooms among Disney's deluxe resorts. I have to admit, Angela Ragno and I stayed there for some Disney president, and I just remember we ended up with a room that had bunk beds, and Angela <laughs> Angela was small enough to actually fit in the upper bunk bed, but at one point, I got to remember, they have those weird light fixtures in the room that look like with the drums. Yeah, with the bears around the back of the yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. So, so poor Angela has really long hair, and in the middle of the night, I hear, ow, 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 and it's just like, basically, she had rolled over and gotten her hair caught in the drum. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just one of these things where it's like, I had to climb up into the, the bunk bed to help her out. That sounds like the beginning of a Lucille Ball There sketch. we go, <laughs> there we go, and and then Ricky showed up. All right, so hopefully someday Jim will be able to release these uh, these images to the, uh, to the public, or they'll, they'll find their way off of the dark web. There we go. All right, let's move on then. Um, do you want to talk about uh, ticket prices or Euro Disney? Uh, well, you know, it's, I, I don't see them as necessarily disconnected. You know, I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about Euro Disney. Okay, uh, real well. quick. So, news came out. I think what a couple days ago, mm-hmm. saying that uh, Disney was going to buy out the other investors in Euro Disney. For the longest time, mm-hmm. the resort had been in a state of neglect. It was only in the last couple of years that Disney started investing its own money into refurbishing some of it to good success. I mean, everything I've heard Mm -hmm. about it says the new hotels, the refurbishments all look good. Is this a case where Disney 
realized that after years and years and years of, of no maintenance, the asset was worth more than what they would pay for it. Disney's position was the nation of France only allowed them to have 49% of the original resort because that's just the way things in France are set up. The majority shareholders had to be from the nation of France. And then, of course, after it opened in April of 92 and then began to have financial difficulties, here's Disney trying to limit its its liability. Brings Prince Ali on board to help the... Prince Ali! Yeah. And it's just, it's one of these situations where it's like, I can remember when DCA opened and like, wow, look, at Disney built this on the cheap and then Walt Disney Studios opened and it was like, I really didn't think you could build one of these out of card tables and folding chairs. <laughs> hey, somebody went to Michael's. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Michelle's. I found something. This is from a June 1974 issue of Eyes and Ears. That's the cast newsletter for folks who work at Walt Disney World. A cover story for this issue is Dick Nunes, who was then the executive vice president in charge of Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Mm-hmm. He spoke for three hours in the, the cast activities lounge to the cast members there. And so and it was it was an open forum. You got to ask him about anything you wanted. And, and for example, somebody asked about Epcot. And so this is what Dick said about Epcot. It's like basically our plans differ litter from little from Walt's original concept. We're going to we've just forced ourselves into a thinking stage two years earlier than anticipated. Now, again, this is June of 74. Epcot was to be and will be a showcase for American industry and the countries throughout the world. It's going to be gigantic in appearance. We're not sure what the city will look like, but the chances are we will build the tower you've seen in the artist's renderings as the symbol for the project. Now, this is, again, June of 74, or, you know, he's saying this. He goes on and he talks about how uh, other things that the, the company has, and this is the first time that they admit to Disney cast members that mm. there are possible theme park projects in Japan and Europe in the works. Really? In 74? 74. All right. Wow. So 18 years before it happens? Yeah. And the weird part of it is, is that we jump ahead now to November that year. It's the annual report. And Card Walker now lets the shareholders know that we have begun exploring the potentials and possibilities of establishing a Disney-themed amusement recreation complex in a foreign country. Wow. Wait. So he told cast members and it got published... Before, well, and again, but again, it was only an in-house that's, newsletter, and oh, so it wasn't for public. Okay, so that's, yeah. that's, that's so we. I mean, we there was that. no web, right? You know, well, okay. so now shareholders are in, in on it, and then jump ahead in November seventy-five. They talk about how they're dealing with three different companies in Japan to develop 590 acres that are bounded on three sides by water in the north end of Tokyo Bay. And that this site, known as Oriental Land, will be 20 minutes outside of Tokyo via subway and potentially taps into an audience of 32 million people. Wow. Disney had no difficulty at all selling this idea to Japan. In fact, given the opportunity to move into this market... It doesn't put any of its own money into the project. Wow. What Disney did is they were so concerned because this was the first non-American Disney theme park. It was going to be the first cold weather Disney theme park that they said, okay, you can put up all the money. And that's what the Oriental Land Company did. And Disney said, what we'll do is we'll take 10% of the revenues from admission 
and and rides and five percent of food, drink, and souvenirs. This is the the, the memo that we saw from Nunes back in the nineties yep. to Australia. Those were the numbers. That, so that's where they got them from, from Japan. Yep. Okay, all right. That tells you Disney didn't think that Australia was going to work because they didn't think they didn't think Japan was going to work. <laughs> this was this was the number that we give to people when we th- think their parks aren't going to work. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So what happens is the park opens in in eighty three. It's a smash hit right out of the gate. Yeah. They have more than ten million visitors during the first year of operations, and Disney now realizes they made a huge mistake. The cost overruns with Epcot, just Disney was not in a position to have invested in this project. We jump ahead to September of 84. Michael Eisner's just become the new chairman and CEO. Frank Wells is the com- new company president. And mm-hmm. 10 days after they walk through the door, Nunes and Jim Cora, who at that time was the president of Disneyland International, they give Frank and Michael a presentation on building a European Disney park. Oh, this is when when new CEOs come in, they ask every division what they're working on. That's it, exactly. Okay, and it's day after day after day of presentation. They plowed a lot of the road here, Len. They started off looking at the four countries they considered, the the United Kingdom, Italy, France, and Spain. So cold weather, not so cold weather, mild weather, mild weather. So General Joe Potter, he was the guy who, when we had to turn a swamp into a theme park, that's who Walt turned to. I'm, I'm talking with him. And I, the subject of Euro Disney comes on, uh, comes up, and he literally leans into me and says, "Turn off the recorder." All right, all right. Joe passed away in December of '88, so I'm, I, I think I'm allowed now Statue to tell the story. Yeah. Okay. Statue of limitations has, has expired. All right, but he basically says, and I quote, "I'm sorry, this is not family friendly, folks, but." This is literally what he said. I could have told those dumb bastards not to build in France. <laughs> I can I, when you, when you said that I had uh, George C. Scott as as General Patton's voice in my head. <laughs> but he he retires from Disney in in seventy four as as the senior vice president of, of Walt Disney World. But they like Disney does. They then bring you back to do special projects. And and Potter was put in charge of the land search. So he That's travels true. around the world. He he brings all of this data back. And he, what he flat out tells me, it's like, I know I stood in that beet field. <laughs> I knew right. the weather was, was bad. And in fact, the French gave Disney such ridiculous tax breaks and financial terms. And, and Joe leads across and said, you want to know why they did that? This exact beet field is where the Germans twice have run their tanks across on the way to Paris. <laughs> and so basically what the French were doing, Disney was looking to build a $3 billion Maginot line. Exactly. It's like staffed by Disney characters. Damn it, we'll be ready for them the third time. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, he was saying, look, we looked at, let's see, there was a site in Alicante in Spain. It was also a site in Costa del Sol that had, you know, it had beautiful weather. I mean, yes, they had the minstrel, the, 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 the mistral uh, winds. Mistrals, yeah. 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 That was one concern, but it was just sort of like, it was the right site. It was the right place. And in fact, the interesting thing is in the middle of the whole Save Disney thing, Roy E. Disney called me here at the house. I mean, that's not weird. Well, (laughs) during this conversation, the subject of your Disney came up and he flat out said, look, 
this was Michael Eisner, and this wasn't about the dream. This was about the scheme. This was about the financials, that, that Disney was going to get all of this money from France to build the park, where Spain had Spain was reluctant to give Disney all sorts of tax breaks because it's like, you know you're going to make money here. You know we already have a tourism base. Yeah, and there are a lot of, just from the film industry, I know there are a lot of creative uses of tax havens mm-hmm. in Europe. So, you know, Eisner coming from the film industry may have been more familiar with that than, say, taking the risk of building in Spain where he wasn't as familiar with the the ways to profitability. I, I kind of I kind of understand that. June of 85, word has begun to leak out that Disney is looking at either France or Spain. And so here's Charlie Ridgway, who confirming that, it, that the site has been limited to France and Spain. And the decision will be based on what sort of incentives and conditions the two countries have to offer. Now, here's what just strikes me as bizarre. And when you think about how Euro Disney was eventually built, it speaks volumes. If the the theme park goes to Spain, says Ridgeway, it will probably become a family attraction, much like Walt Disney World. If it goes to France, it will be geared more toward conventions. France gets high marks because it's a population center with good transportation system where Spain has better weather. But think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. If you now look at the way Euro Disney was built with the, the giant hotels there with their giant convention facilities. This was all about getting people to travel to to France with the idea of convincing companies in Europe to do their big conventions at you know, the convention center at the Hotel New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One adult goes to the conference, the other adult and the kids go to play in, in Euro Disneyland or Disneyland Paris, but they all stay at Disneyland Paris because it's easier that way. But again, just to look at what we're talking about now at the Coronado even today and what a huge part of this business this is. But again, now the, the question is with Disney talking about buying more and more shares, you know, buying into to Euro Disney or Disneyland Paris, that money's got to come from somewhere. And so let's talk about this, this yet another ticket price increase <laughs> just this past weekend. So a couple of interesting things happened. Mm-hmm. One, they eliminated the separate water park fun and more option. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's combined into a what's called the Park Hopper Plus. So the Park Hopper option stayed. The base option stayed. The difference in pricing for the Magic Kingdom and the other three parks, that differentiation stayed the same. The The big news is there is no separate water park fun and more option. If you get that, you have to buy it with a Park Hopper. So it's actually a simplification of the scheme. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that many people were interested in the water park fun and more option without the park hop option. My guess is the number of people who bought just a base ticket with the water park fun and more is relatively low compared to all the other options. So I kind of see eliminating it. There are a couple of interesting things, though, in the pricing. Let's start with the one-day tickets. The one-day peak pricing for the Magic Kingdom stayed the same. Didn't go up at all. The regular pricing went up 5%. Mm-hmm. for adults and kids. So just to put this into context, the U.S. inflation rate last year, Jim, 2.07%. Wage growth in the United States, 2.48%. So prices went up twice as fast as your paycheck last year. And the interesting thing about them targeting the regular season is there are more days designated regular than any other category. So they put the highest price increase on the days categorized most frequently. So the most days got got the largest increase. Is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. The value season went up two percent. So that basically stayed the same with inflation for the other parks. 
However, every kind of ticket went up. So for Epcot, the studios in the Animal Kingdom, the value tickets went up 2%. The regular tickets, the regular season tickets went up 5% again, and the peak season tickets went up 4%. I got to say, Jim, if for, uh, so this includes Epcot, the studios, the Animal Kingdom. They're really just pricing in Pandora here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's all they're doing. And that's the roll of the dice. I mean, I, I, one has to assume standing outside of it and given knowing what Disney is going to do, to launch Pandora, that you know that this is going to be wall to wall. We're going to have ABC, Good Morning America down there. We're going to have an yeah. opening special. I mean, you're earlier this weekend. We finally had Rivers of Light begin performing, ready or not, and it's not. It's not. Yeah. So I, uh, so you, you know, in in technology circles, mm-hmm. there's this concept of the minimum viable product, mm-hmm. which is the least amount of functionality you can package up and release. As a uh, as a standalone app, and I think that's what Disney did with Rivers of Light, that they said it kind of works the way it is. Let's release it and see what uh, what people say about it. And as we've said repeatedly, I mean, the reason they needed this show open now is so that they can figure out how to to do two shows. It's five thousand people, right? Yeah. Okay. So you know, accommodating ten thousand people with this show per night. Out ahead of Pandora, you know, getting ready for the, because yeah. that's really what this is all about. They're gonna, they're just gonna need something for you know, ten thousand people to do while they're waiting in line at night to go into uh, Pandora. That's it exactly. And they needed to open it now because there are still there are still technical issues that are unresolved mm-hmm. to the point where I think over the weekend they they actually had an emergency stop during one of the two shows. Yeah. And they've got to get they've got to get this stuff ironed out. And they and what they're thinking is. Between, you know, they've got February, they've got March, they've got April, they've got part of May. Yep. By the time the press descends mm-hmm. on Orlando in May, they hope to have these technical issues ironed out. And then hopefully, you know, maybe in phase two, mm-hmm. we'll see the other effects that were promised, the 100 floating lanterns, the other effects. Well, hopefully we'll see those in a phase two, and Disney will get to promote that all over again. From what I'm hearing... This is basically a a three-year run for this show. The, the thinking now is like, we just want to return an investment. We just want our money back. We've built a wonderful facility to present a show. We will keep this till we burn through all of the merch that we have and that sort of thing. And then there's a brand new show coming in because entertainment just realizes that it just didn't come together in the it end. Didn't, yeah. You know, and, and, and something's happened. I, I give them credit for trying. Mm-hmm. You know, the show doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And I've said so. At the end of the day, I, I understand you still got to swing for the fences. It would have been impressive had it. Uh, no, had no it doubt. Maybe, maybe, by then, maybe by then they do drones. Maybe in three years, the. Uh, the drone technology is is different, but let's uh, let's continue going through the uh, the rest of the tickets. So yep. it looks like mm-hmm. the base two the base two day tickets actually went down in price. If I'm if my calculations are correct, one percent. Base three day tickets did the same. Where you start to see the huge increases are four days and beyond. The four day tickets went up eight percent. The five day tickets went up nine percent. The six day tickets went up ten percent. The seven day tickets went up eleven percent. The eight-day tickets went up 11%. The nine-day tickets went up between 10 and 11, and so did the 10-day. So there's an interesting theory here on this. Mm-hmm. And it looks like what Disney is trying to do here is to differentiate between the cost-sensitive consumers and those who aren't as sensitive to costs. So it looks like the one-day tickets, the two-day tickets, the three-day tickets, average increase for tickets up to four days was 2%, basically inflation mm-hmm. or your wage growth, right? So if you're sensitive... If you're price sensitive, you could rationalize the trip to Disney World by saying, 
look, my paycheck went up, or Disney costs about the same this year as it did last year. But what you see that's different is those people who can afford the longer vacations, they're paying way more. I mean, double, almost double-digit increases across uh, are the average for the four to ten day tickets. The average is a ten percent increase. That's a lot. You know, an eleven percent price increase doesn't bother them at all. They're still coming. To put it into perspective, you know, a ten percent price increase on a base ten day adult ticket mm-hmm. is about forty dollars. You know, so one hundred and sixty dollars for a family of four adults. If you're going for ten days, a hundred and sixty dollar increase in the cost of your Disney admission, sixteen dollars a day. No one's going to think about it, right? And and again, I mean, forty seven dollars a day to go to Disney World on a ten day ticket is is good value for money. One an admission into the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which I consider the finest museum in the United States, mm-hmm. is a suggested donation of twenty five dollars. I can kind of see Disney World worth fifty at that point. I, I don't I don't quibble with it. It's the uh, it's the one day stuff for parks like the studios that just drive me crazy. Yeah, the studios is just. Oof. And, and remember, that that's the other news that just came out of our shareholders quarterly call that Iger did confirm 2019 for both of the Star Wars experiences. Interestingly, uh, so he's saying it's going to come out the year after he leaves as CEO. Well, that's the he, other he could, he could story. Could lots of things, Jim. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you, you did see that, you know, a story got floated by the Wall Street Journal that um, – Iger is open to the idea of staying past 2018. Well, well, let me just say the uh, the feedback I, I heard on this was the guy kneecaps the two people that the board had identified as his successors, mm-hmm. and then decide, and then then uh, pretends like he's doing something gallant by saying that he'll stay on. <laughs> like, like I think I think the board is tired of it, of the succession problems. And no doubt, with no Iger. doubt. I, I don't I don't know if they'll they'll take him up on his offer. We now live. In Donald Trump's America, where it's just one of these situations where every day something new pops up that either stresses out people domestically or internationally. And there's a lot of pressure in this situation for people to just stay the course. With things being so unpredictable outside, let's stay the course inside. And so, and Iger, and ironically enough, Iger is supposed to be on Trump's Business Technology Council, isn't he? Or uh, He was. I think he's gone to one meeting. I would be shocked if he went to another. Well, you know, uh, and that's all I think he actually said that. something in either during the earnings phone call or just after to the effect of, well, look, wouldn't you want to be in the room? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, we're the only one who got invited. Wouldn't you want to be in the room to, to try to influence decisions, you know, whether it's tax breaks or that sort of thing? The problem is, is Iger has two important constituencies that he needs to make sure are happy, neither of which are happy with, with the current administration. One of them is China. The other one is Hollywood. Yep, <laughs> and, and and Iger, Iger cannot be seen as cooperating with Trump to either of those groups of people because Hollywood will simply refuse to work with him, and China's a China's a big and and powerful country. They can do a lot to make Bob Iger's life miserable. No, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, think about how 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 he could China could make Disney's life difficult, whether it's lax enforcement of intellectual property, mm-hmm. whether it's restricting access to the Chinese market to films, whether it's, oh, you know what? We've decided to build a moat around Shanghai Disneyland. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we could 
you know, they're going to reroute the Seven Rivers uh, Dam or something like that uh, to you know go right down the middle of Main Street. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that the Chinese government could do. No doubt, no um, doubt. Remember, Iger's always been a pragmatist, and, and in fact, the fact that Iger, during the last ten years of Michael Eisner's reign as the head of the Walt Disney Company, I would imagine a lot of job skills that would make it easier to deal with Donald Trump. He acquired. I mean, you know, just that, that how Eisner would, we're absolutely positively getting into game. No, we're not. Yeah. This is a complex situation. I mean, yeah, I see your point. Mm-hmm. Maybe you would rather be in the room mm-hmm. while those talks are happening. The problem is, is when you're in the room, you're essentially in the room on that tightrope. Yeah. And so the question is, is do I need to be on the tightrope at all? What am I getting for that risk? What is the reward? I mean, the fact that you're in the room is one thing. I mean, maybe you could influence the policy. But that's a big if, right? That's a that's a. Well, I'm not sure what the reward is, but I know what the downside is. Type thing. Yeah, yeah. The fact that Iger said that he was not attending the last meeting due to a previous commitment. Yep. I mean, first of all, he, I'm sure he's not doing his own Google, Google calendar stuff, <laughs> where he he mistakenly you know forgot his dental cleaning or something like that. I my sense is he's got more than one assistant who manages his calendar, and something like invitation to meet President of the United States. It's probably going to be at the top of that list. Yeah. The whole previous engagement thing was like, you know what? Let's let's wait for some of this furor to die down here and see what happens. And I think that's what it is. But my, I would be surprised if you saw him on another meeting. He might dial in or something like that. He's definitely not going to get photographed. Okay. I'd be I'd be surprised. I mean, when you look at things like, for example, just the change dot org petition about not letting the president speak in the new version of Hall of Presidents. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean that's that's gonna be a whole separate tightrope for that. But I mean that's that's we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. There we go. That, that, and there's our exit ramp. Len, grab it. Go, go. <laughs> I was listening to to the uh, CBC today, Canadian Broadcast Company, and yep. Prime Minister Trudeau was meeting with the uh, the Americans today, the, with uh, the administration, mm-hmm. and, and they they were asking, well, you know, what, what is Canada expecting to get out of this? And and the Canadian guy was like, honestly, if there's not an international incident, we're just going to consider a success and go home. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe that's that's what we could hope for right now. Look. <laughs> Every, everyone is about the way that, that everyone tonight is about where they were in the morning. I think there we go. There we go. <laughs> Thinking you know, that that's it's it's getting to that point. It's just like oh okay good. Yeah, did, you know. All right good yep. good good no international incidents. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right uh, so Jim so for the next episode the next uh, well let's do uh, continue our chronological Disneyland. Absolutely absolutely and then that brings us to Westcott and Port Disney Disney Seas so. Fantastic. All right, we'll look forward to that on the uh, next episode. That'll be our March 1st episode here on iTunes. Until then, please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and rate our show, which is produced fabulously, I might add, by one Aaron Adams. Also, let us know what you'd like to hear next on our shows. We have some openings after the Chronological Disney is done, and we're always happy to take requests. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. Take care.